back in, at the end of 1999, people were all in a dither, whatever a dither is. They were in it. They were concerned, Y2K, would the world come apart when the year went from 1999 to 2000? There was a conference going on that last week of the year. It was put on by our previous denomination. It was a conference for youth. They were expecting 15,000 students to show up for this conference. Uh, at the time that it was about set to launch, I think they had about 2,000 signed up and maybe somewhere under 5,000 actually attended. It just fell well below. And their explanation was that it must be the anxiety around Y2K. I think there might be another reason. They called the conference Dawn, dot, 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 and Epiphany. Even to this day, I'm not sure what that means. Dawn and Epiphany. I don't know if they test marketed that with their demographics or not, but it sure didn't seem to turn out. You know, the word Epiphany, it, it, it might be one of those words that, that you hear someone say, you're not sure if they meant it pretentiously or if, it, if it's just insight. You know, I had an Epiphany. It's also a religious word. We use it within the church. It's like the word nativity or, or, or righteousness, words that we use inside the church that we don't always necessarily use outside the church. For the church, Epiphany is often celebrated on January 6th among a number of Christians, although it can also be celebrated uh, on the Sunday that falls between January 2nd and January 8th. And since this is the 2nd of January, we're going to have an Epiphany uh, sermon today. So what does epiphany mean? The word has its root and it means uh, a manifestation or a showing forth. And it commemorates, it acknowledges that there were these moments when Jesus showed forth who he was. In fact, there are four basic passages that seem to come up uh, time and time again during Epiphany Sundays. One of them has to do with the nativity itself. Jesus God in the flesh came forward, showed forth, manifested his glory in this world. People also are drawn to the, the passage about the visitation of the Magi, the wise men coming to see Jesus, Jesus being shown forth to the nations. Some people will gather around the passage that talks about Jesus' baptism, that, that, that moment where God the Father says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit is present and seen in the form of a dove. And There's a fourth passage, and it's the one we're going to look at today. It's the passage that um, describes the wedding in Cana. And so if you have your Bibles, or feel free to make use of the ones that we have in the rows for you, let's go ahead and open those to John chapter 2. We'll be in the first 12 verses. The Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear the Word of God. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding uh, with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. 
Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. May God bless the reading of his word, and may God work in our midst as well for his own glory. Now, I, as a pastor, I've officiated a number of weddings, and there seems to be these times in weddings that are kind of revealing. You kind of get a picture into the couple. One of, uh, of the five kind of key points of revelation uh, when people get married happens to be the processional. Of course, it makes sense. It's when they first walk into the room, you get to see what they're wearing. You get to see what their faces look like and, and um, how they respond to each other. Of course, then there's the time where they exchange their vows. Did they write their own? Are they using traditional ones? Do they have some contemporary ones? How do their voices sound? Then there's this like package of other choices. So did they use a unity candle? Did they braid a rope? Did they mix sand together? What, what kind of songs did they choose uh, for their ceremony? You move beyond that and you finally get to the end. There's the presentation. It's a revealing of the couple as husband and wife for the first time. The, the, you know, the pastor or the officiant says, it's my privilege to introduce for, for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. The fifth one happens at the reception. It's all about the cake. Are they smashers? Right in the face. Do they politely feed each other? Is it a mix? Does, does one smash and the other not? And, and how do they respond to each other? Revealing moments of a wedding. Well, it turns out that in our passage, there are five different revelations that we can gather around today. Things, insights that, uh, that we might take a look at and, and appreciate as we go through the text. One of them happens to be the incident itself. There's a moment of intercession there's this great instruction that's provided. There's a, a time of intervention. And then finally, we can look at the impact of it. So let's begin with incident. Do you know that this wedding in Cana is a remarkably unremarkable manifestation of Jesus in this world? It's in Cana, after all. That's like for a Peorian to go, well, they got married in Galesburg. Or if you're, a Saint if you're from St. Louis, you go, well, they got married in Peoria. It's just a small little place. In fact, we don't even exactly know where Cana was. There's four different options that archaeologists think that it might be, and it's some distance, maybe four to eight miles north-northeast of, of Nazareth. And it has guests. We don't know who the couple was. It was just a wedding. Among the guests are Mary and, and Jesus and, and Jesus' disciples, but it's not like they were hunting out Jesus to have them there. Nothing said special about Jesus being a special guest at the wedding. And it's a kind of wedding where wine runs out. Yes, Jesus was there. 
but it's not like, it's not like this was Beyonce showing up, right? <laughs> right? At that time, right? Now, now if you had your choice, Beyonce, Jesus, I know some people would still go, Beyonce. But it's not like when um, Maroon 5 cut that video, you know, they surprised a bunch of people in L.A. one day and they shot their um, uh, vi- vi- video for their song. Or when uh, Taylor Swift got the letter from a, a family member of a bride that was getting married and talked about some of the tragedies around the life and she showed up at the reception and sang songs. Or, or when um, in, in that time uh, where Ed Sheeran arrived and sang a special song. It's not like those at all. Jesus just happened to be there. So what can we know? What can we know from this text, about, from the incident? Here's what we can know. Jesus shows up and makes unremarkable moments remarkable. Jesus shows up and makes unremarkable activities and conversations, events remarkable. He just happened to be at this wedding, a wedding where wine ran out, and Jesus was there, and did something. We have so many what we might consider unremarkable moments in any given week. Maybe you're at a team practice or a budget meeting or you're having a hallway conversation. If you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus shows up in those moments. In fact, he even said, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Jesus pours out his spirit upon each and every one of his followers. What might seem from outside is an unremarkable experience. Knowing that Jesus is there can change the whole texture and flavor of that moment. There's this line in the first chapter of John's gospel. John writes, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, this world, it it has this dead end um, uh, journey uh, uh, in front of it. There's darkness. There's not a solution to this darkness outside of who Jesus is. And so when Jesus comes into the mundane darkness, the very common everyday darkness, Jesus shows up and manifests his glory, and the unremarkable becomes remarkable. So how can we respond in 2022? We can trust Christ to always be present. Throughout the coming year, the Jesus who shows up on Christmas Day, the Jesus who dies on a cross and is raised from the dead, that Jesus promises to always be with us. We can trust that Christ will always be present. The second thing we can look at that's revealing about our story is an intercession. The text tells us, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. I love this little description of this encounter between Mary and Jesus. You wonder, is this just the classic mom-son moment? You know, turning to to Jesus as her son and and expressing a problem that's going on right there in front of him, just saying, hey, I just want to let you know they have no wine. That was a big deal. That was such a part of the, the feast, the celebration around the wedding event. They have no wine. You know, culturally, it would be appropriate too. There's no mention of Joseph, so, you know, people speculate what what has happened to Joseph along the way, and we don't have data on that. Maybe at this point, uh, um, 
he has died and he's no longer part of the family. And so Jesus culturally would be the appropriate one that Mary would turn to as the first, as our firstborn son, that Jesus would then respond. And, and, and maybe she's approaching him not out of some kind of miraculous power, but maybe he might have wisdom in the moment to be able to act. We wonder, what would it have been like to be in their home and watch Jesus grow up under his, his mom's guidance in the midst of that? It would be great to know all those conversations. When we look at Jesus' response to his mom in this intercession, they have no wine, this asking of, of Jesus, we find that his response is, woman, what does this have to do with me? You know, some people get concerned. Why would Jesus respond to his mom by calling her woman? It's interesting. If you actually look at the, the Gospel of John, there's a number of places where Jesus addresses a female in the same manner. The story of the, uh, of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, you know, the, this outsider, this woman at the well that, that Jesus goes ahead and, and has this long conversation with, revealing who he is to this outsider. And at one point he addresses her, woman. We also find that when Jesus is talking to his mom Mary, when he's on the cross, and, and he turns to his mom and he says, woman, behold your son, as he turns the care of his mom over to one of his followers. Then there's that time with Mary Magdalene. This is after Jesus dies on the cross, is raised from the dead, and he's with Mary Magdalene, and he very tenderly says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Well, as he addresses his mom this way, he goes on to say, my hour has not yet come. You know that Jesus' hour on this side, it was a reference, by the way, it was a reference to Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. That's Jesus' hour. His hour that he came for was that death on the cross, that through his death, when the one who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the defining lens of everything Jesus did. In fact, from this perspective of time, we look back through that lens to understand all the work of God up to that time. From where Jesus was, he was looking toward that hour. He tells his mom, listen, my hour has not yet come. You know, what we can know from this is that our job is to ask. Our job is to go like, like Mary. Now, this is not a text teaching about prayer, but as we observe the, the, the stories that's laid out, we find that Mary is the one who asks, just presents it before Jesus. Our job is to ask. It's Jesus' job to wisely know when and how to answer our prayers. Our job is to ask. Our job is to pray. It's Jesus' job to wisely know when and how to, uh, to answer. So how can we respond in 2022? We can trust to Jesus the outcomes of all of our prayers. We can trust to Jesus the outcomes of our prayers. Which then brings us to instruction. I was reading on, uh, uh, there was this thread on Reddit, and they had asked, what is the worst advice you ever received? The worst advice. I'm sure you have your own list of worst advice you ever received. One person wrote this. He said, in my early 20s, my stepdad encouraged us, his sister, his brother, and himself, to max out our credit cards, then file for bankruptcy. Oh, such good financial advice. Another person wrote, uh, the, um, from my father, 
don't go to the doctor's office if you only have one problem. Wait until you have four or five. That's how you get the most bang for your buck. I don't recommend that. And a third said this. Uh, a father told his son, tell a woman she smells every day and she'll be constantly clean. I, that's just wrong. That's just wrong. Bad advice. It turns out in our passage, we have some of the best advice ever. We have some of the best advice ever. Here's what we can know. In our text, Mary gives the best advice ever. Do whatever he tells you. Do, do, you, do you see the picture? And, and we know that we have just John's telling of the story, but Mary brings the request before her son. They've run out of wine. Um, and Jesus has that response. Uh, what does this have to do with me? And my hour has not time. And then she just turns to the servants. Do whatever he tells you. But we know from where we sit that Jesus went on to teach about all kinds of topics. That he taught about generosity and he taught about love and forgiveness and anger and lust and prayer and obedience and abiding in him and faith sharing. He talked about all of these things and more. And the best advice we could receive from this little story is do whatever he tells you. So how can we respond in 2022? We can choose this year to trust the teachings of Jesus. Next is intervention. And for this, we can come back to the, the passage itself. And if we read uh, verses 6 through 10, we, we get a, a, a description of the intervention that Jesus brings. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, uh, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You know what's noteworthy about this intervention? It's not about the work that the people did. You know, some people, if they've, as they've approached this passage, they've tended to emphasize that, you know, what we really need to do is fill our vessels up to the brim and then see what Jesus can do. Like, our work is what, is what matters, and then Jesus can respond to our work. But that is to um, go against the, the, the very teaching of Scripture. It's not about the work that we do. It's about the work that Jesus does. In fact, as commentators point out, that, that what we have here is a real comparison between the old covenant and the new covenant in Jesus. Jesus was starting with the, the water that was used for purification rites, that were, was part of the tradition of the fathers, the tradition of the elders. It was part of the works righteousness that the people were supposed to do to make themselves clean. And what Jesus does, he takes that water that that works righteousness water, that, that purification water, and he changes it into wine. 
And wine was often associated with joy and with feasting and abundance and God's provision about a right relationship with God. And so in this picture of going from water to wine, we go from the old covenant to the new covenant. We go from works to God's grace. There's, again, two verses in John chapter 1. John writes, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here's what we can know. Jesus intervenes with grace. Yes, he always intervenes with truth as well. That's the next story in chapter 2. It's the story where Jesus turns over the tables in the temple and he confronts the, the money changers. And, and there's teaching of truth in there. And Jesus always shows up with truth. Yes, he has limits. He has guidance. He, he declares what's out of bounds, what's in bounds. But he always shows up with grace, too. He never just shows up with truth. He always shows up with grace. Grace upon grace. God's unmerited favor. Jesus intervenes with his grace. So how can we respond in 2022? We can trust Jesus' grace. We can trust Jesus to show up with grace time and time again. We can build our lives around the, the grace that Jesus offers. That, that if there are tendencies within us, maybe trappings within our own experience of Christianity where we've returned to works righteousness, where we think we have to earn God's love, we can set that aside and know that Jesus shows up with grace. And finally, we come to the impact the text tells us Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. What can we know? We can know this. When Jesus manifests his glory, his disciples, his followers, grow in their faith. When Jesus manifests his glory, his disciples grow, his followers grow in their faith. Now, it's interesting because the, the phrase in the Greek is that, that, they, that they grow into or they, they believed into him. They believed into him. They trusted into him. It's a, it's a preposition that has, um, it has movement involved with it. Here's what we already know about the disciples, even from the Gospel of John. They already believed enough to follow Jesus, to become one of his disciples. And yet in the midst of seeing God at work, in their midst, in the incidents of their life, we see as he manifests his glory that they trusted into him. They continue to grow. We know that experience. So how can we respond in 2022? But we can trust that Jesus will manifest his glory in our midst. And by that, grow us in our faith that we can show up in those team practices, those budget meetings, those hallway conversations, those marital disputes, whatever it might be, and we can trust that Jesus will manifest his glory as he intervenes with his grace and he'll help us grow in our faith. In our story, the wine ran out. We live in a world where wine runs out. By the way, um, Wine was a very common drink for the people of the time. And everywhere in Scripture, wherever it talks about drunkenness, it's always talking, talked about in, in, um, in terms of that, that sin and in foolishness, and we're not to, to become drunk. 
Um, so the speaking about wine here is about a, a, a drink that was often diluted with water, and, uh, but always speaking against drunkenness. But we live in a world where wine runs out. This world does not have the supply of joy, the, the, the source of, of, of eternal life. This world cannot provide this. This is a world that has limits and failings and frustrations and pain and suffering and sorrow. But in, in a world in which wine runs out, here's what we can know. We can know Jesus shows up and makes unremarkable places, activities, conversations remarkable. We can know that our job is to ask and Jesus' job is to wisely know when and how to answer. We can know that the best advice ever is to do whatever Jesus says. We can know that when Jesus intervenes, he intervenes with grace. We can know that when Jesus manifests his glory, his followers grow. And so how can we respond in 2022? Capturing what we've already said, we can trust God to be present. We can trust uh, to Jesus the outcomes of our prayers. We can trust the teachings of Jesus. We can trust the grace of Christ. We can trust Jesus to manifest his glory and to grow us in our faith. Jesus came, replacing the old covenant with the new, an eternity full of joy, full of his grace, full of life. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you are indeed a God who sends your son into this world that we would have life. And that our call is simply to trust to take Jesus for his word, to take Jesus as the scripture has defined him to be and, and to respond with faith, to respond with trust that any situation we're in, that if we had a choice between doing it our way or Jesus' way, we would simply trust Jesus in each and every moment. We thank you, Christ, for coming into this world, for setting us free from the bondage of sin, that we would have life in you. We thank you that even as you minister to your disciples, as you were revealing your glory to them, that you gave them the gift of what we call the sacramental meal of the Lord's Supper. And so we ask that you would take these very common elements and set them aside for a very remarkable, remarkable purpose. That you would remind us of our faith, that we would experience your grace even in the sharing of this meal. We give you ourselves in response to the gift of you. To you be the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.